0: Welcome to episode 12 of A Year in a Day. I'm your host, Jamie Davis. In episode 11, I discuss the do's and don'ts of custody litigation with my colleague, Melissa Essek. In this episode, I will be discussing evidence in family law cases with my summer interns, Olivia Daniels and Grace Massarelli. Olivia is a rising senior at Davidson College, where she is working toward a Bachelor of Arts degree, majoring in history with a minor in English. Olivia has spent the summer interning at Gaylor Hunt, and she plans to apply to law school in the fall. Grace is a recent graduate of the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where she earned a bachelor's of science degree in economics. She will be starting her first year of law school at Campbell University's Norman Adrian Wiggins School of Law in the next few weeks. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Thank you, Jamie. So I'm really glad that you ladies are here with me today. Um, When you all first got to Gaylor Hunt this summer, you asked me if there was anything you could do to help with the podcast. Mm -hmm. And after giving it a little bit of thought, I asked you guys if you wanted to come up with your own topic and to host an episode. So in this episode, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do things a bit differently today. I'm going to hand the microphone over to you all, and you guys are going to host today. Thanks, Jamie. We're
1: excited to be here. Right, Grace?
2: We cannot wait.
1: So something that we've both been doing during our internships at Gaylor Hunt is go through a lot of evidence in a variety of different cases. So today we wanted to talk to Jamie about the kinds of evidence that she often comes across in family law cases. So, Jamie, in custody cases in particular, what are the types of evidence that a party can request?
0: Well, so, in general, parties can request evidence that is relevant to the pending subject matter or that's likely to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. So, in custody cases, what we are typically asking for Um, are things related to the health and welfare of the children, like school records, medical records, um, if any testing has been done, maybe one of the children has a learning disability. We're also looking at communications. And when I say communications, I mean between the parents, between the parents and the child, and also between the parents and any third parties if those communications relate to the children or otherwise relate to the lawsuit. Great. So kind of piggybacking
2: off of that, what are the most typical categories of evidence used in a custody case?
0: Well, there are so many different types of evidence um, that we use in custody cases, but I would say more often than not, uh, we're talking about medical records, school records, emails. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, between the parties, between the parties and other people, between the parties and the child. Also, text messages have become very important in custody cases. Um, Social media, a person's Facebook account, maybe their Instagram, their Snapchat, um, occasionally perhaps LinkedIn or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the computer, the smartphone, or the tablet itself. Um, can be requested in discovery in a custody case, as well as any you know regular pictures, print pictures, electronic pictures, maybe audio recordings, videos. And in some custody cases, um, believe it or not, we even have PI reports that we use. Wow, that is a lot of evidence to sort through. Um, how would you request
2: this type of evidence?
0: Well, there are typically two ways that we can go about um, asking for these things to be produced. One way is what's known as a request for production of documents. Um, that is a formal request that we serve on the other side, and it basically sets forth all of the different things that we're asking for. You know, maybe a category is produce all pictures of you with the minor children from a certain date to the present or, or something like that. Another way that we can request evidence is through the use of a subpoena, um, and we can serve that subpoena on a third party who might have evidence that is relevant to our custody case. Um, Maybe there is a grandparent who frequently communicates with the mom or the dad or even with the child's teachers or, you know, otherwise has communications that are relevant to the custody action. And so in those cases, we could actually send a subpoena to that person to request that they produce the information.
1: And once someone receives a subpoena or a request for production of documents, how long do they generally have?
0: Well, for a request for production of documents, um, they get 30 days to answer, and then they can ask for one 30-day extension. And so when we are serving this request on the other party, it can take us up to 60 days to actually get the documents produced. Um, With a subpoena, the time frame is usually a little bit shorter. Um, Sometimes we can get the documents you know, in, I'd say, two weeks or so, um, sometimes a little longer.
1: So can parties request each other's medical or mental health records as evidence?
0: Um, They can if it is relevant to the case. And I will say that in most custody cases, typically if there are mental health records, Um, it can be argued by one side or the other that those records are relevant. And so if we want to request, for example, the other side's mental health records, um, we would need to do that through a judge signed subpoena. Um, Another way that we could get those records would be if if both sides have mental health records that need to be produced, perhaps both parties would be willing to sign a release um, so that both parties' records would be produced.
2: And then, is anyone ever allowed to
0: delete evidence? So the answer is no. Um, A party should never delete evidence. Um, If you are already a party to a lawsuit, that goes for your text messages, your emails, your Facebook page, believe it or not. You can't go on and cherry pick which photos are not very flattering of you and and delete Mm -hmm. them. Um, You're under a duty to preserve evidence. And this is true even if you think that you might become a party to a lawsuit. So let's say that you and your um, partner get separated and there is a chance that there could be a custody lawsuit. At that point, you are under a duty to preserve evidence. And when you go speak with a lawyer, if you do, your lawyer should tell you that. They should advise you that you should, believe it or not, um, make a backup of evidence that could be destroyed. For example. Um, data on a cell phone, right? You know, people lose their phones, phones get destroyed, maybe you drop your phone in the pool. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to have a backup of that evidence so that you have complied with your duty to preserve it for the lawsuit.
2: And
1: what are the consequences of deleting evidence?
0: Um, So it depends. um, But what could happen if you are involved in a lawsuit and the other side can show the court that you purposefully or even negligently deleted your electronic evidence, the court can draw an inference that whatever the evidence was would have been negative to your position. And so that's a pretty big deal. Um, It's much safer and a better course of action just to preemptively protect your electronic evidence. That way you don't find yourself in that position.
2: Okay. So assuming that you have an electronic device, how do you go about obtaining the evidence that may or may not be on the device?
0: So typically what we do is we hire an expert to do that. Um, You know, most lawyers are not going to be skilled in making an image of a cell phone, but you hire a forensic um, electronic expert who can make an exact copy of the computer hard drive or the tablet or the cell phone itself. So when a device is imaged,
1: does the opposing party just receive all the information and data that has been on that
0: device? Um, No. So usually the way that works is that, let's say that my client's device is being imaged. Um, I would supply a list of search terms to the expert, um, and they would review the data to ensure, for example, um, you know communications with me to ensure that those were filtered out. And then I would have the opportunity to review that information before um, anything that is potentially privileged is sent to the other side. So talking on
2: emails between you and your client, is there ever a time when the opposing side could request them or ask for you to produce them?
0: So, typically emails between a client and his or her lawyer are privileged and they are Mm -hmm. not subject to being produced to the other side. Um, There can be an exception, however, if a client is forwarding attorney-client privileged emails to third parties. The other side could then argue that your client has waived the privilege and that they would be entitled to the information. And so, um, it's really important that you advise clients not to forward their communications with you as the lawyer because you don't want to risk that they waive their privilege.
2: So if you have someone, you know, a brother or a sister that's not a party to the lawsuit at the time and you want to keep them kind of in the loop with what's been happening and what the attorneys have been saying, what would it look like if you wanted to forward an email to them? Is that still a big no-no? no
0: no So I would say forwarding an email is a no-no. I wouldn't advise a client to do that. I think if they want to talk to someone who is close to them about the lawsuit, they just need to understand that they are potentially making that person a witness. Um, I think it's fine to still talk about your children and your life and how you're feeling. Um, But, you know, your close friends and family members probably don't need to know all the ins and outs of your lawsuit. Um, You know, if there's somebody who you want to come testify for you, great. But just remember that anyone you're talking to about this stuff is potentially going to be a witness in your case.
1: So once you get emails, for example, from the opposing party, how would you use that in court or in the custody case itself?
0: So typically if they are emails that we have gotten from the other side we will use them in court to impeach the person's testimony. And so what that means is if the other side is trying to paint this picture in court, that they always communicate um, very cordially with the other parent, and it's the other parent who's you know ratcheting up the tension. And let's say I've gotten some emails from this person um, in Discovery where they say just terrible things about my client. I will use those emails to show the court that um, the other party was not being honest in their testimony.
2: So a little earlier, we mentioned cards and calendars and that sort of evidence. How would you exactly use a a card in court?
0: Yeah, I can see where that might be a little confusing. So Mm -hmm. typically, if we use like a greeting card... Um, maybe it's, I'm going to use a Mother's Day card. And in the Mother's Day card, the dad was just going on and on about what a wonderful mother this woman was, that, you know, she's a blessing, that, you know, she's the best thing ever. If he in court is then trying to say that my client is a terrible mother, that she's always been a terrible mother, that she doesn't know how to parent, you know, I might use that card as an exhibit to say, Well, at least, you know, a year ago when you sent her this card, you didn't think she was a bad lady. Mm -hmm. And so I think, again, it can be used to impeach the other side. If you think that you might find yourself in a custody
2: dispute sometime in the future, what are some ways to proactively start conserving um, evidence or documenting or kind of just, what are some
0: steps to protect yourself? Really, you just said the key word. It is all about documenting. Um it's important to keep a journal or some sort of record where you can just jot down notes of things that have happened. Um, Let's say that your co-parent is routinely late picking up your child from school. Make a note of it. Um, If, you know, he or she didn't show up at the parent teacher conference, make a note of it. You're not going to remember these things most likely by the time you get to a trial if there ever is one and so really I encourage my clients to keep a custody journal or just you know it could be a notebook with some notes in it about things that have happened you know the date and what happened and I also encourage them that if something strange happens and they can't really pinpoint why it's strange note it you know did the other parents say something that you know just didn't sit right with you, make a note of it. Um, You may never need this stuff again one day, but if you need it, you have it. And so I think it's just better to be prepared. Um, Same with a a calendar. I think calendars are really important to just, again, you may never need this, but, you know, it's good to know how many overnights your kids are with you versus with the other parent. And so those are a couple of things I think you can do. I also think that you um, can start communicating with the other parent in writing about important things just so you both know what you agreed to. Um, If it's about a pickup time for the children, if it's about whether or not the other person agrees that your child can participate in an extracurricular activity, if the two of you agree on a variation in your basic custody schedule because somebody needs to go on vacation and maybe they need to pick the child up a day earlier Just have that stuff in writing, and that way neither one of you will be confused later about what the deal was.
1: So one form of evidence that we haven't discussed yet are financial documents. When can you request bank statements or other financial reports in a
0: custody case? So the general rule is that you can seek discovery of evidence that is relevant to the subject matter of the action. And if the subject matter of the action is custody, you're going to have to show a link between why you need the bank statement or the credit card statement or whatever it is and custody. Now, if child support is also pending, you know, those records are most often relevant to a child support claim. And so then you could request those records. Um, If it's solely in the context of a custody claim and there's no financial claim pending, you're going to have to show some reason why you need these documents. For example, maybe the other side asked you to keep the children and he or she claimed he had to work. But you know, maybe a friend told you that he or she really went on vacation with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Um, you may be able to show the court that you need those financial documents to prove that the other parent was not being honest about his or her whereabouts.
1: You mentioned PIs earlier, and
0: I was wondering what kind of evidence do you generally obtain through private investigators? So it depends on the type of case. Um, But if it's a custody case, a PI can be useful if you think the other parent is drinking excessively. Maybe they're drinking and driving. Um, Maybe they're frequenting bars. Maybe they have a drug habit. Or if you think the parent is leaving the children with a babysitter and going out, these are all the sorts of things that a PI could help you find out. Um, Of course, if you are involved in an alimony case, let's say, um, PI evidence can be helpful to determine if the other spouse is having an affair. These are the typical types of cases that you think about having PI evidence in.
2: So another question for you, Jamie. Are there laws regarding the use of audio or video recording devices to collect evidence?
0: Um, Yes, there are. So you must be a party to the conversation in North Carolina to be able to record it. North Carolina is what's considered a one-party state. So that means if you and I were having a conversation and I wanted to record it, I could, and I wouldn't have to tell you. Um, That is if both parties are in the state of North Carolina. Now, bear in mind that different states have different laws, and so I can't speak to whether that would be true if the other person was in Florida or South Carolina or or somewhere else. Um, Video is different. So you can record video. You can record video in your home, Um, but the Video recorder needs to be in a more public area of the house. It, it all goes back to whether the person being recorded would have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And so, a camera in the bedroom, probably a bad idea. A camera in the bathroom, again, bad idea. But if there is some sort of recording device, again, this is we're talking video, not audio. Audio is different. Um, In a public area of the home, and when I say public area, I mean like the living room or the kitchen or something like that, it's probably okay. Again, audio, you can't leave, for example, um, a voice-activated recording device just sitting around. That would be considered wiretapping. You must be a party to the conversation in order to be able to record the audio.
1: Since we're in the age of information and there's just so much on the Internet, I'm interested to know what types of evidence can be obtained from social media accounts.
0: Wow. Um, So social media accounts can be a goldmine of evidence in a family law case. Um, If the person has a public account, you know, you can just go on the Internet and see whatever they've posted and, and print it out. Um, When we conduct discovery and we send those formal requests to the other side, asking them for documents, we can actually ask them to give us information related to their social media accounts. And so, for example, Facebook, um, you can actually print a Facebook archive of your account. And so we will include those instructions for how to do that in our request for production of documents so that we expect the other party to go into their Facebook and actually download this archive and print it. And it's kind of scary, but the archive basically has everything in it that you have ever done on Facebook. Um, If you have posted a picture, if you have made a comment, even your Facebook messenger messages oftentimes are included in that archive. And so for a family law attorney, social media Can be crucial to the case. And how long are these Facebook archives generally? Um, I don't know for certain, but from the ones I've seen, I mean, they seem to go back to the beginning of when the account was created. Would you
2: recommend making fake accounts to collect evidence? found on social media posts? Um,
0: No, I wouldn't. Um, I think that that is unethical and for a client to lie and pretend that they're somebody that they're not. Again, if the other side has a public account and they can just see everything they've posted anyway, I think it's fair game. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think it's fair game if you maybe have a mutual friend with the other side and so if that person is willing to let you see their Facebook account and through that account you happen to see your ex-spouses or your co-parents account you know i think that's okay too but since you can request this information through formal discovery and appropriate means i always tell my clients to take the high road and get the evidence the right way so that you can be sure that you can use it in court right
1: besides social media what other kinds of written communications can be evidence in custody cases
0: um emails between the parties text messages between the parties um sometimes we get the old school handwritten letter or the um, mother's day card that the dad gave the mom, you know, that could be evidence, all sorts of things.
1: And so do you recommend that, um, during a lawsuit or conflict, attorneys be copied on written communications between the opposing parties?
0: No. Um, I think that, the parties themselves should communicate with one another, and I think that it can sometimes escalate the tension between the parties if each party is constantly copying their lawyer on the communication. Um, What we can do, if there are cases where the parents have trouble communicating with one another, at the beginning of the case, we may ask the client to send us their email before they send it to the other parent so we can read it and make sure the tone is appropriate and that they are not saying anything, that they would be ashamed to read out loud in court one day. And we will help them learn how to communicate with the other parent. But no, um, I certainly don't want to be copied on every single email between my client and the opposing party.
2: So what kinds of non-electronic evidence are
0: usually used in family law cases? Non-electronic. So I would say photographs are a biggie. Um, Photographs of the parent and the child doing fun things together. Maybe some photographs of their house to show that they have a suitable living environment for the child. Um, And then on the flip side, you know, there may be photographs of the other party doing something they shouldn't. Maybe they are out drinking or partying and there are pictures of that. Um, We also sometimes use calendars and journals to try to prove how many overnights the child uh, was with a particular parent in a given period of time. Um, Sometimes there's actual what you think of as physical evidence. You know, maybe um, there's a parent with a drug problem and the other side has seen drugs and paraphernalia in the house. Again, we don't want them to bring the actual drugs and paraphernalia into the courthouse because that would be bad, um, mm-hmm. and they would probably be arrested. But if they want to take a picture of it, that picture could be evidence in the custody case. So when you make a
1: discovery request, how do you accommodate this kind of physical evidence that isn't easily emailed over in a PDF, for example?
0: Um, so a greeting card is a pretty good example. Um Or maybe there are, I don't know, voluminous journals. Maybe one of the parties has been keeping a journal throughout the marriage and they were married for 20 years. Um, We will make those things available for inspection and copying by the other party. So what that does is... It puts the burden on the other lawyer to come to your office and look at the stuff. If they want us to try to make a photocopy of it, of course we will, or we'll let them send it out to a copying service. But some of these things, you really can't get the full impact of it unless you are there looking at the actual book or thing or calendar or whatever it is.
2: So what gener- what are general tips for navigating written communication and internet activity that you think we should kind of all abide to?
0: Um, If you are involved in a custody lawsuit, the lawyer's preference is probably that you keep your social media posting um, to a minimum. Mm -hmm. But there are some folks that they're going to post anyway. And so we would just recommend that they, you know, be careful about the types of pictures that they're putting out there. That they be careful about where they're checking in. Um, you know, especially on Facebook, you can check into whatever your location is and depending on whether or not you have the children, uh, where you check in might be used against you. Um, social media is also not a place during a custody lawsuit for you to be posting your feelings about the other parent or your feelings about the lawsuit, you know, talk to your friends about those things, but don't post them on the internet. Right. Um, I would say with communications such as emails and text messages, again, I always go back to take the high road, and are you going to be ashamed to have to read this out loud in court?
1: Those sound like some great tips for everyone, not just those involved in custody litigation. Thank you, Jamie, for having us today. We've really enjoyed being here.
0: Well, I'm so glad you all joined me today, and you know, I can't help myself. I'm going to have to ask you each at least one question, so... Grace, we'll start with you. What has been your biggest takeaway from today's conversation?
2: Wow. Well, I've definitely learned a lot and there's a lot to think about, but I think as in uh, the biggest thing I'm going to take away is that I've always had the misconception that my phone is just so personal to me and that no one would have, you know, a copy of everything that would be on it or that that's a possibility. So I think just being mindful that even though it's on my device and I might have a thumbprint to get into it, it's not untouchable. And just being intentional with what I have on there.
0: That's a really good point.
2: Olivia, what
1: about you? I would definitely agree with Grace on that. And I would also say that I'm thinking more about the ways in which my written communications and all the information I have out there could bring third parties or other people into something that I might want to be a very private dispute with another person. So definitely being mindful about my communications with my friends and family.
0: Right, because that can certainly affect your relationships with other people if they are suddenly brought into this custody dispute and they had no idea you were even involved in it. Well, thank you again, ladies. I think thank this you has so much. It's been a great conversation. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of A Year and a Day. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jdavis at divorcestuff.com. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review on iTunes. As a reminder, while in my role as a lawyer, my job is to give folks legal advice. The purpose of this podcast is not to do that. This podcast is for general informational purposes only, should not be used as legal advice, and is specific to the law in North Carolina. If you have questions, before you take any action, you should consult with a lawyer who is licensed in your state.